just as we're getting started, I, I, we're going to be in Matthew 12. You saw the text that Brian read through, and, um, and so you can go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew 12 while you're, while you're turning there or getting there on your app or however you're going to get there. Um, I just, I was thinking about school getting started, and uh, one of the massive complications of this era, if you have school-age kids, which I don't, um, I just know of school-age uh, parents and people with school-age kids, it's like, what a conundrum, how do we go through this? It's like an exercise in uncertainty and stress and all these decisions and, you know, things happening. And so I was thinking about just school and particularly junior high. We don't have many junior high kids in City Church. I hope that that changes. I would love to see more and more junior high kids, a part of a, just a clan of junior high disciples who are seeing the kingdom advance in junior highs all over uh, Fort Worth. That's where a lot of my faith in Jesus was, uh, was born is during those junior high years, but junior high years are rough, man. I mean, maybe it's just me, but like, I, in some ways, I'm like, uh, I was thinking about like, what does it feel like to go to junior high? Because I'm like, hey, you guys are kind of getting to skip out on that. That might be a win just for your emotional health. Uh, because going into junior high every day can be like, like kind of just putting on your backpack and walking into the savannah, you know, where there's like, is there a lion there in the grass? I can't quite tell. There's all these territorial things happening, all these dividing lines. At least it was, that's what it was like for me in junior high. Maybe you had a really peaceful, you know, non uh uh, anxious, uh, non-group-centric or exclusive experience in junior high. But if you did, welcome to the minority. That's not the. That's not what most people are experiencing. Uh, junior high is hard for me, particularly. There were dividing lines like everywhere you turn. Okay, one of the dividing lines that got kind of created uh, during my eighth grade year was this preps versus skater line. Okay. <laughs> Which I was like, I mean, who came up with these names? It's like, okay, whatever. And, and, and the reality was is that somehow, okay, guys, I, you can see how I'm dressed this morning, okay? It, I'm not an extremely preppy guy, but somehow or another, I got deemed the leader of the preps, okay? Which was all fine and well. You know, there, it's, it's not great, uh, but it's not terrible. I was like, whatever, I just am wearing my clothes, okay? I'm just trying to have clothes to wear to school today, okay? And it's like, why is it so consequential? But it was, okay? And it was consequential because uh, this line got drawn and it got really serious, actually, uh, where there were some really th serious threats made against me just to, because of the clothes that I was wearing to school. And, uh, and it seems like so ridiculous, right? It's like this guy wears a Slipknot t-shirt, which is probably, I think that's actually what they were, this guy was wearing, and uh, this guy wears a, a polo. And it's like, dude, that's silly. You're going to threaten this other guy. It's really serious things. And I think that uh, what's interesting is that I think adults, we like to act like that stuff peaks out in junior high. Those dividing lines, territories, groups, we look at junior high kids and scoff at them thinking, come on, guys, get it together. Quit being so silly. It's just a t-shirt. But the reality is, is I think, I, and I would, get, I would wonder just for you, if you can sense this, that there feels like there's dividing lines every different which way right now in our world that we're living in. It just feels like there's, I'm like, I don't know if I should step here because then I might be crossing this line into another tribe. But if I don't cross the line, then I am already in a tribe. So it's kind of a really scary spot. And, and so what I think is that divisiveness is actually in the air that we are breathing. 
It's just in the ether. I don't even have a lot of media inputs into my world. Like, I, I probably have less than you, okay? My wife is, like, helping me actively understand what's happening in the different spheres of media inputs, okay? Because she's like, you're going to miss it, dude, and that's problematic. You're not a good pastor. Um, and, uh, and what I think is because of all of this input, there's this divisiveness in the air, and it has created a defensiveness as the default emotional posture of the day. Now, you can agree with me or not agree with me, but that's my sense that I'm trying to pick up is it seems like defensiveness is actually the default emotional posture of the day. And um, even in here, like I started this, this gathering today because I know that just by virtue of having this gathering, people online, so people online who are watching, you might think, oh, well, the people who are gathering here would think about us and say, gosh, why aren't you guys just coming? Uh, and then the people who are gathering in here are thinking, well, there's people online and they're thinking, gosh, why are you guys doing that? You shouldn't be doing that. Right? Maybe you've thought it. And it's not even that the judgment is real. <laughs> it's just that we think that it's there. Okay? And so it creates in us a fight or flight mode that we have gotten into in our engagement and relationships with each other. And so... Now, I was, uh, the text this week, I think, actually speaks to this, but it doesn't speak to it the, quite the way that you would think. You might think, oh, this is a church. The church answer to this is that, hey, there should be no dividing lines. Let's not make any divisions. Let's, let's kind of erase those and unity. Let's make that the, the call of the day. You might think, okay, hey, preacher guy, like, make that the answer, right? Here's the thing. My biggest concern for you is actually that you would miss the di dividing line that's most important. My biggest concern is actually that you would miss a dividing line that Jesus draws. And I think we'll actually speak to and resolve these other divisions and territories and tribalism that would exist in our world. Okay? So that's what I want to actually look at is what is the dividing line that we need to pay attention to? Which is the tribe that we need to belong to. And the, 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 the kind of core of this message that I want you to hear is, um, is that Jesus demands a response. Jesus' presence on this earth, his name in this gathering, Jesus Christ demands a response from us. He draws a dividing line just in his very person, and how you respond to Jesus will determine where you stand in the only lasting division. How you respond to Jesus will determine where you stand in the only lasting division. Okay, and so the Matthew 12, the context we're coming into is this rising tide of opposition to Jesus. Okay, that's where the, the, if you're just reading through Matthew, you're going to see now this thing start happening where all of a sudden people are coming, kind of growing, there's a growing discontentment with Jesus. He wasn't the type of Messiah that uh, people wanted him to be. And so people were trying to decide what they thought about Jesus. They were trying to decide who they were going to think he was. And so these lines were being drawn and Jesus was not trying to blur those lines. He actually was saying, there's a line being drawn right here. Let me actually trace it a little bit deeper for you. 
That's what was happening all through Matthew 12. The, the stakes are getting raised more and more and more throughout this whole, uh, this whole section. And in the immediate context of Matthew 12, Jesus had just healed a blind, mute, demon-possessed guy. And the religious leaders of the day, they claimed that Jesus was doing those miracles by the power of Satan and not by the power of God. Whose team is he on? This Jesus. And so Jesus, all throughout this chapter, he's saying, hey, there's a judgment day coming, and, uh, and how you respond to him will determine how you're going to be judged. Three times in the chapter, he, he compares himself to an Old Testament object or figure. So he says, hey, I'm greater than the temple. There's something greater than the temple that's here. And then last week, Chris referenced this as well. Hey, there's something that's greater than Solomon that's here. And then we're going to see him say today there's something greater than Jonah that's here. So verse 38 in chapter 12, pick it up there. And it's really easy to just kind of let, maybe let your brain just disconnect and maybe say, oh, I'm sure he'll just help me ride through this message and pick up all the points. But um, I would just... Try, try to lean into the text and see it there for yourself. You can read, read this and reread this. I've, I've read and reread this passage this week trying to see what it is that God has for us. And I, I'm convinced of it that this passage is reminding us that Jesus demands a response from us. And how we respond will determine where we stand in the ultimate line of dividing. Okay, so verse 38 says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So again, this is being spoken not in a like really chill context, okay? This is a pretty, pretty ramped up moment, uh, maybe like a really tightly strung uh, moment in all of Jesus' ministry. And you see these, these, says some of the scribes and Pharisees. And it, and it looks like what they're trying to do is try to, decide, trying to decide what they think about Jesus, doesn't it? So you see, some of them came and answered him, saying, hey, we want to see a sign from you. Will you give us a sign? And the, the interesting thing, that just to, to remind you what Andrew taught a couple weeks ago, when, when we encounter Jesus, we are not, uh, he is not joining our side or somebody else's side. We are either joining his side or not his side. He is the dividing line. He won't be brought onto one side or another. So the Pharisees, they look at him and say, hey, give us a sign to let us know which side you're going to be on. And he says, there's only one sign you're going to get. But the interesting thing that I think is happening here is that the religious leaders are looking, I don't think they're looking honestly to get a sign. I don't think they're looking to respect Jesus because that's how that kind of appears, right? They come to him and say, teacher or rabbi. And, and no, every commentary I'm, I'm leaning into on this, they're like, well, they, they take this really respectful tone with Jesus. And I'm like, this would be shocking for them to take this tone with Jesus. It's more likely to me that they look at him and say, uh, hey, Rabbi, why don't you give us a sign if you're going to say all these things, trying to tell us how everything is going to go? Hey, Rabbi. 
And so I think they're actually speaking to him not with respect, but with disrespect. Because they would have, to become a rabbi to, to the Pharisees, you would have to go through a series of training, gone through all the right schools. So basically, you would have to go to all the Ivy League schools, get your master's, get your doctorate. And, and so nobody's, nobody's getting called Dr. So-and-so unless you have all the credentials. And in the eyes of these leaders, Jesus does not have those credentials. That's what's so crazy about Jesus is that he didn't study in all the right schools. He's just looking at all these people and saying, this is what God meant. And I'm telling you that you need to do this. And the religious leaders of the day were saying, this guy is crazy. He's telling us, he's trying to explain to us the Bible. We're the one who know, the scribes are the guys who get paid every day just to repeat it. Okay, they're just rewriting it and rewriting it. And they're saying, you're telling me what the Bible says, what the Torah says? And so I don't think they're being respectful. I think that they have seen enough of Jesus and they don't actually want to see more from him. Because this sign would be like something cosmic. It'd be like, hey, why don't you, you know, write it in the sky for us, Jesus, if you're really who you say that you are. And if they were on the fence about Jesus, they're not. But if they were, it would be because their hearts are far from God. And I think that that's what's, that is the case for them, is that their hearts are far from God. That's why they're on the fence about Jesus. You can see that in John chapter 1. John chapter 1 explains that when Jesus came into the world, it was the very giver of life, the one who created everything, came into the world but was rejected by the ones he was created. Because their hearts are far from God. Okay, and so you can see that when Jesus' response, he answered them. And what did he say when they said, hey, Jesus, won't you give us a sign to just help us, kind of coax us into believing in you? Why don't you give us a sign to maybe help us really believe that you have all the authority to tell us how things are going to go on Judgment Day? And he, um, he isn't like, oh, great, guys, you're kind of coming on in. Let me help you on in here. He says, I'm not going to give you a sign because you're evil and adulterous. And I, I think that Jesus is not just kind of like, hey, let me just fire off some shots of insults at these guys. I think he's, he's, he's saying, you're coming trying to judge me, but I'm telling you that you have been judged. Evil and adulterous. And don't you think, have you, did, I mean, in reading that, does adulterous stick out to you a little bit? You see that? And it, what, is that, what does he mean? Does he mean like, hey, this generation, you guys just sleep around like crazy. This guy's cheating on his wife. That wife's cheating on her husband. You guys are just really adulterous. You think that's what, do you think that's what he's saying? That's not what he's saying. He's not talking about their marital fidelity to one another. They're talk, he's talking about their fidelity to God, which is so, what's so crazy. These are supposed to be God's people, worshiping in God's temple, following God's rules and his laws. And, and, he, and what Jesus is saying is what God has said throughout all of the Old Testament which is that your hearts are far from me. Your hearts are far from me. And they're committing adultery. The way that God speaks about his relationship with his people is like a husband with a wife. He's saying, you're cheating on me because you're worshiping lesser gods. Now, my question for you is, is this just contained in this moment? Like, is, are, we, are we looking at kind of like a historical incident and saying, okay, here we go. We got 
These, this generation in particular, Jesus is interacting with them. They're evil and adulterous, and so how can we kind of take a moral lesson from this and move forward from the day? I don't think that's exactly how we're engaging with this, because it's not just their generation that was evil and adulterous, I would argue. Do you think it was just that generation that was evil and adulterous? Well, I know for sure that it was all these generations leading up to that generation. That's what God sent prophets over and over and over again to his people saying, your hearts are far from me. It doesn't matter that you're going through all the motions. Your hearts are far from me. It doesn't matter that you're showing up in all the right places and all the right times and, or that you're going to the right website at the right time. It doesn't matter that you're doing that stuff, checking all the boxes, giving the right money. Your hearts are far from me. And I would say it is not just that generation or the generations that preceded it. It's our generation, is it not? Is our generation's hearts not far from God? It would, of course, be our generation because it is every generation whose heart is sick. Every generation since Genesis 3. That's what this whole story, this whole series on BC, the history of redemption is getting at, is that we have a heart level problem that was born in the Garden of Eden, which was heaven on earth. It took heaven from earth. Okay, so now we just have earth and sin and brokenness is echoing out into not just this generation, all these generations over and over again. Every um, child to their parent is being passed this, uh, this inherent sin that's coming into life. That's what Romans 5 says, that, that death spread to all people because sin was spreading to all people and it separates us from God. We're wicked and adulterous, evil and adulterous. But I also would remind you that it's not only our generation that is evil and adulterous. I think that there's a real kind of golden age thinking that can happen that says, man, things right now, they are the worst they've ever been. Ah, Jesus was looking at these guys saying, you guys are evil and adulterous. That was a long time ago. It wasn't our generation. It's not only ours. The problem is the same problem. Look at me. Okay, I don't care how old, how old you are. The problem is the same problem with that generation and our generation. Our hearts are far from God. We're, our hearts, kids, if you don't know this already, your heart is a little uh, worship uh, idol factory. Okay, you're cranking out little idols all the time, which just means things that you're going to try to trust and treasure above God. All the time, we're cranking them out. Okay, and so we need what they needed. Okay, which is good news because Jesus does not cut off the sentence. You see him, he doesn't just cut the sentence and say, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given, period. He doesn't say that. And that's really good news for us, okay? So keep reading because he doesn't say no sign. He says one sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. One sign. So it seems like a really important sign to, to not miss, right? If there's one sign, have you guys ever missed a sign when you're driving somewhere? I have missed many signs. I'm like, uh, one time my wife and I were driving from Houston to New Braunfels, and I just total space cadet, um, was just like in another, which is also scary. I'm like driving on a highway going like 80 probably honestly like 88 miles an hour or something, you know, and um, my mind is somewhere totally else besides, besides reading the signs. And I miss the sign, we end up in San Antonio, okay? So like you don't want to miss this one sign, okay? There's not a bunch of this one sign. Uh, what is it, okay? He says the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
Okay, so Jonah uh, is, this uni- is unique as a prophetic book in the Old Testament. I bet you've heard of Jonah. Okay, raise your hand if you've never heard of Jonah. It's like not many people in here, so you're like, <laughs> I would love it if we all, for the record, if we get people who are like, man, I've never heard of Jonah, the Bible. What are you talking about, the Bible? I would love that, okay? But that's not where we're at because Jonah is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. It's only four chapters long. But what's unique about it is that it's, you, you know it's a story and it's not like the other prophets. That might be why it's better known than most of the other prophetic books actually is because it's a little mini narrative, okay? Most of the other prophets, what they are saying is, hey, thus saith the Lord, I'm going to speak into this and speak uh, something that's going to one day come true, something needs to happen right now, or one day come true, okay? And, but Jonah is not doing that. Jonah's telling you a little mini story, and you've heard part of the story, right? It's a familiar story. It's not a collection of sayings. And Jesus actually mentions the part of the story that you know in verse 40. He says, here's the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, we don't, we don't know, a lot of people say a whale. It's not clear if it's a fish or a whale. Um, it's not clear exactly what it was. A lot of people want to sort of uh, make this into a myth or a legend or sort of some kind of allegory that Jesus was telling. He didn't treat it like that for the record. He treats it like something that happened. So I'm going to treat it the way that Jesus treats it. Okay, just like he was in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He says, the sign of the prophet Jonah, that's the only one you're going to get. Because just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish, I'm going to be in a tomb. Now, there's a lot of things that you can get as you read through the, the book of Jonah. Man, I wish we could just preach right through every verse of it. It's gonna be, it would be amazing, super fun, but that's not the point of this series just to to dive in all of the amazing kind of realities that Jonah can teach us. Because Jonah can teach us about, it can teach us about race, okay? Uh, Race and nationalism are right at the core of what the book of Jonah is teaching us about. How God sends one of his people to a people that um, is is the enemy of Jonah. The enemy of God's people. And he sends them to them and says, I want to rescue those kind of people. Right? It speaks to race and it speaks to nationalism. It speaks to the mission of the church. It speaks to all those things. But at the core of it is how can God rescue people who aren't deserving of rescue? And Jonah is the answer to the question in a way. But Jonah doesn't like the answer. So you can read that and it's also very interesting and entertaining. It ends with a cliffhanger. The book of Jonah ends with a cliffhanger. How is God just and merciful? And Jonah himself, well, actually, because the question I end up asking, what is the sign of Jonah? A lot of people, a lot of commentaries are going to say the sign of Jonah is actually the, um, his preaching. And then this passage is saying, hey, the sign of Jonah is the fact that he was in the fish and that he came out. It doesn't, it, both are true because the sign of Jonah is Jonah himself. The sign of Jonah, he is, he is, he is what we would call a type Okay, there's a lot of prophets who are speaking a message about Jesus. That we're going to see that in Isaiah and in Ezekiel, a picture of Jesus with words. Jonah was a picture of Jesus with his whole life. So Jonah himself was a sign, but Jesus is the answer to the question, which is how can God be merciful and just? Jonah doesn't get it. We don't get the answer in Jonah. You don't get the answer in the Old Testament. You get the answer when Jesus says, hey, Jonah is all about me. 
Because he was in the belly of a fish, I'll be in a tomb. And so Jesus is saying here, how you respond to Jesus and his resurrection, this is the sign that we will get. He's coming out of a grave. How you respond to Jesus and his resurrection is the most important thing about you. You want to know what line, what identity, what tribe you need to find at the closest core of your heart? What defines you at the deepest level is how you respond to Jesus and his resurrection. That's what Jesus is going to say to us. Acts 17, verse 30 and 31. I think, I think we have it on the screen. Look at this. This is Paul preaching a message after the resurrection of Jesus. He says this, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. How you respond to Jesus and his resurrection is going to be what marks you for the rest of eternity. That's, what, that's why I'm telling you the only lasting t- division. Because in the end of all things, there will be no skaters and preps or whatever line you are drawing, homeschool or, or going to school, whatever it might be. There are some really real things going on, weighty things. A lot of them aren't as clear as like, hey, a racist, not racist. It's not that clear some of these times, okay? It's how, how we are going to apply those things, how we're going to live that out and pursue uh, goodness, okay? But, but the only line that's going to end up lasting is with Jesus trusting in Jesus, not trusting in Jesus. And so judgment, I just, am, I just am ticking off a few of the things that I know are flying around in the ether. Okay, judgment is flying around all of us, or at least perceived judgment. I think a lot of people are, again, living in a state of emotional defensiveness because of perceived judgment, not even real judgment. I don't even think it's necessarily real. I think it's just perceived. But what if you could see all that judgment or perceived judgment flying around like cell signals? What if you could just kind of like see it with your eyes? And it was like, just, I think, I think our whole, every, like society would just be filled with it. It'd also be a little bit disturbing if we could see all the cell signals. I'm like, I don't know how that works, how they're passing through all of us, but it's neither here nor there, okay? But the thing is, is I think we are living in the state of emotional defensiveness because we are so concerned with the judgment of other people on our parenting, on our social distancing, on our weight, on our clothes, on our status, on our religious performance. We are so concerned with the judgment of other people, but we are missing the judgment that really matters, which is God's. And so here's the reality is that Jonah, the book of Jonah doesn't end after he gets out of the fish. Do you know that? The story is not primarily about him getting out of the fish. He gets out of the fish and he does something. And you can see in verse 41 of Matthew 12 what what he does. Because it says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jonah gets out of the fish and he goes into Nineveh, which is a really, really big city, like three days to walk across it. I'm not sure exactly how big that is, but I don't even know how long it took me to walk across Fort Worth. But he doesn't even walk halfway into it. He walks one day into the city. He gives an eight-word sermon, which is, seems really apathetic about, 
And something crazy starts happening. All the Ninevites start repenting. So he goes and he preaches a message and something happens. What is the response that Jesus is calling then for that generation and our generation? What is the response he would have for us? What is the response? Does Jesus say, hey, I just want you to feel good about yourself. I want you to know that I love you. And I want you to know that everything's cool so you guys can go live a happy life. Okay, that's the sign of Jonah for you. No, the result of the sign of Jonah is repentance. Jonah went and he told them they're going to be destroyed unless they turn their hearts back to God. Jonah's message was one of repentance. Jesus' message is one of repentance. The message that you are getting in your world, okay, is probably one of two things. It's condemnation without hope or it's hope without condemnation. What I mean is it's, it's, uh, it's judgment without hope or it's hope without judgment, Okay, and so the first one just leads you, it leaves you powerless to actually change. The other day I bent my lawnmower blade. I was mowing, I hit a root, it bent my blade. And, um, and so um, I took the blade off and I got a new one. I haven't put the new one on yet. Okay, so now imagine I go out my lawn, I crank up my lawnmower and, uh, and I start mowing. Now how much grass do you think is gonna get cut? No grass is getting cut, okay, right? Because there's no blade underneath it. There's nothing that can actually change it. There's nothing that has any teeth to it. And so whenever you, somebody gives you condemnation without any motor or any blade to actually cut and change anything, all you have is a judgment without hope. The other message that you're going to get and you're getting in your world is hope without judgment, okay? Uh, Jen Hatmaker has a new book out called Fierce, okay? And now Jen Hatmaker is an extremely dynamic communicator. She's like, her level of giftedness compared to mine is, is like um, absurd. She's extremely gifted. Here's the only problem is that the message that is being sent in that book, okay, is that you are exactly enough. It's a quote. You as you are, you are exactly enough. Now, um, Alyssa Childers, she responds to this and she says, I agree that because we're made in God's image, every person has inherent worth and dignity. So do I, just so you know. Dignity, I think the problem, a lot of, a lot of the problem right now is we're treating dignity like a zero-sum game, okay, where there's only enough dignity. We have a pocket of dignity and we've got to give it out to everybody. And so, so if we, we got to decrease somebody else's dignity to raise somebody else's, and that's not how God plays he says, you have my dignity. I instill it to you. It's not a zero-sum game. Okay, but we as a church agree that because people are made in God's image, every person has inherent worth and dignity. This is a glorious truth. I'm continuing the quote. Yet Hatmaker omits the part about how we've managed to distort that image with our sinful choices. Though she acknowledges human evil, her answer isn't repentance. Rather, it is to realize that even the worst evildoers still have something precious at their core. Readers are encouraged to practice self-compassion, not self-denial. And so that's the other message that you're going to get is hope without judgment. That's not the message of Jesus. 
Self-compassion is a real, important, good thing in a lot of ways, but it is not enough on its own. Self-compassion would just be kindness to yourself. That's honestly something that I really wrestle with and struggle with, and I have to see something happen that is going to not just say, be compassionate to yourself, be kind to yourself. There has to be something else. And so the problem rooted in Jen Hatmaker's kind of everyone belongs theology. That's where the problem is. She says that everyone belongs as they are. That's not true. Everyone's invited. But everybody's invited to change. It's different. And it has, according to Jesus, this really eternal difference. Alyssa Childers again responds. She says, Jesus' vision for the world isn't that everyone belongs. Here's the dividing line I'm talking about. It's not that everyone belongs. He was clear that many will not only be excluded, but will be separated from him for eternity. And so our self-compassion, listen to me, our kindness to ourselves must follow the compassion of someone greater than us. We must receive compassion from somebody else first. And that's why, listen to me, it is good news that someone greater than Jonah has come. That's why it's good news for you today that someone greater than Jonah has come. Because here's, here's the reality. Jesus is greater than Jonah. My, uh, uh, another pastor, he says it this way. Jonah preached God's word. Jesus was God's word. Jonah said that he would rather die than see sinners saved. Jesus died so that sinners would be saved. God sent Jonah to save one nation. Jesus came to save every nation. Jonah saw that the king of Nineveh got off his throne and repented. Jesus is the king of kings who got off of his throne and leads us to repentance. Someone greater than Jonah has come. Compassion, if you want to understand what it is, and this idea of self-compassion that's going to lead you down a path away from Jesus, not to him. It comes from the root of root words that means suffer with. That's what compassion means is when you have compassion for somebody, you suffer with them. And all throughout Jesus's ministry, the scriptures tell us that he had what? Compassion. He suffered with us, but more than that, he suffered for us on our behalf. He went into the belly of the earth for three days and nights, and he came out preaching a message of repentance. And so if you miss that message, church, if you miss that message, you will be missing the greatest message the world has ever heard, then the only one that that will create lasting division. What does repentance look like? I want to give you a real simple picture. In the belly of the fish, Jonah prayed. And he prayed this one thing that caught my attention. When he's talking to God, he said, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. What does that mean? Those who worship false gods forsake what? Some kind of religious badge that you can get, like a religious merit badge? or status in your neighborhood, or what are you forsaking, or what are you missing out on? The hope of steadfast love. Repentance is turning away from lesser gods, little gods, the God of being an Instagram-worthy parent, the, 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 the God of um, 
financial uh, security and prowess that comes through having this vehicle, the God of this, the God of that, the God of this, whatever it is that you trust and treasure before Jesus, you're forsaking your hope of steadfast love because what God said is all those other little idols, little gods will fail you. And so what do you do? I'm, I'm, I'm wanting you, I think Jesus is wanting you today to see the sign of Jonah the prophet and receive his compassion. You see, he didn't just go into a tomb, he went into the tomb on your behalf to pay for what you couldn't afford. And now he has come out preaching a message of repentance, turn away from lesser gods to the true God who can give you steadfast love. Receive God's compassion in Jesus. You see, I don't think that... uh, uh, We're going to save that. Receive his message of compassion towards you. You will not be self-compassionate, and you will not be compassionate towards others until you believe that God has been compassionate to you. Look at me. The conflict you have with your spouse, the disagreement that you have at work, the disagreement, the the anger that you have when you're driving in your car, the anxiety that's going to keep you up late at night, all of that, all of that stuff is rooted in this place between you and God until you receive the compassion of God through Jesus for you. Finished and done, all of it, everything that you've done to deserve an eternity apart from him, that on judgment day, you know how he will judge you. Blameless not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus did on your behalf. Receive his compassion today. Receive it. Let it get down into the crevices of your heart. And wherever you come across this week, anger, anxiety, frustration, despair, towards anybody else, find what you're doing with God's message of compassion towards you. And then repent of neutrality towards Jesus. I would say that anything in your life that you are neutral, uh, that finds neutrality towards Jesus. Well, my job, that's not really about Jesus or my, my parenting, my home life, my singleness, my, uh, my neighbors, all those things. I'm kind of like, Jesus is neutral about those things. He's not. And we can't be neutral towards Jesus in those realms of our life. And the last thing I would say is if you receive the message of compassion, be a messenger of compassion. Be a messenger of compassion and Jesus. I'm telling you, be a messenger. If you receive that message, do not keep it to yourself, Jonas. Don't run to Tarshish because you have these Ninevites in your life that you do not want God's compassion to reach to. But God is sending you to go and give compassion to the rest of the world through Jesus that they would know forever the hope of the gospel. Do not, let, and until you realize this, you will never go to your Nineveh and share the gospel with those Ninevites until you realize this, that once upon a time, you were God's Nineveh. You were his Nineveh. You were his enemy. And you deserved his judgment. But he sent somebody greater than Jonah for you. Let's pray. Oh, God, would this be true in us? Oh, I think this has power, Jesus. I think this message has power to take all of these dividing lines and all these tribes that want to uh, get us backed into different corners to call us out away from those because the one thing that defines us is how we relate to you, Jesus. Because that defines our eternity. That defines where we stand on judgment day. The only judgment that matters is yours, God. 
So would you call us out from our corners, call us away from this perceived judgment on one another and just stand for a moment underneath the weight of your judgment and remember that Jesus is paid in full. That we have somebody better than Jonah. Would you help us to receive the compassion of Jesus today? There's people in here, there's people online, there's people who are hearing this, God, who don't really, they don't have self-compassion and try like they, as they will, they will not be able to muster it up. They can't be compassionate to themselves until they know your compassion, so would you help them to receive it? Would you help us to be a church that's not neutral towards you, Jesus? No, would you help us to be a church that says, hey, we have our eyes fixed on one thing, our King of Kings, who's come and who's coming again. And we're going to be about what he's about. And then would you help us, God? Please. Would you turn us into messengers? Ambassadors? There's people in our lives that are hurting, they're backed into a corner and they're so defensive and hurt and wounded and scared. Would you give us favor with them? Would you give us, Holy Spirit, would you empower us to be the ones who proclaim the gospel into their ears? Would you help us? Help us to believe it.